So first, we were wondering about how did you manage to get so many people involved in GovZero and, um, and your other projects, and mm -hmm. if you were surprised. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so just a very quick recap of what GovZero is. Um, it starts at uh, late 2012. And it's a way for uh, all the domain names in Taiwan that belongs to government. It ends with gov.tw, right? I think in France, it ends with gov.fr. And so basically uh, what the GovZero is, is that it's a concentrated effort for the grassroots people to build for each government website a, the same website, but it ends with g0v.tw, so that it's kind of a shadow government. So when people go to the environmental agency, emv.gov.tw, they change the O to a zero and then get into the shadow environmental agency, which uh, displays the same kind of information, but in a much more intuitive, interactive, open data kind of way. And when the real environmental agency in Taiwan thinks it's a good idea, then it would merge that back and so it will become the, the official website. So it's a way for people to um, prototype for the government in an unsolicited fashion and so for people to experiment uh, different ways of how the public uh, administration would reach uh, its audience and its users. So um, the, the reason why it could involve so many people is that the government, especially the national government, the city government, have very different concerns. And within the national government, every ministry, every department also has its own concerns. So uh, for people in the civil society, some care about the environment, some care about human rights, some care about you know financial integrity and things like that, education. And so for each of those uh, civic groups, they would uh, reimagine the shadow government's their ministry in their own image, so to speak. And so because people's interests are as diverse as the governmental functions, that's why we can involve so many people because we don't have uh, to have one set agenda. It's just everybody working on whatever they care about. Okay. Um, so what do you think is key for our people to get interested in political matters? I think uh, the, the thing about political matters is that uh, it's a kind of learned helplessness if one think of representatives as, you know, the, the proper channel. So if I, like, run into a problem in my street, in my community, in whatever thing that I care about, um, the usual reflex in a modern democratic uh, society is to find one of the local associations or representatives and then tell them, you know, this is a problem and it's fixing and it will go through, you know, the usual official channels, the budget get allocated, the things get fixed. Um, but the problem uh, with this sort of uh, reflex is that uh, all the way it's like one person and versus a system. Throughout this process, there's no additional way for the, the people to meet people with other interests uh, that align with them because everybody just reports to this, this machine which automatically fixes everything. And the, the way GovZero um, attempts to, to work is by uh, allowing people to uh, basically find people who also care about the same thing and the, the sentiment that people usually have is that, oh, so I'm not alone. I'm not the, the only one who care about this 
a very small thing in, in Taiwan or in, in their city. And so just by uh, letting people discover people with uh, interest that align with them and with people with very creative solutions that they could together prove to the government that you see this is a better way of doing things, uh, is what we call fork the government, meaning that we take whatever the government offers, uh, not denying or eliminating it, but take it to a different direction. And I think that is the key of you know a do-it-yourself way of uh, like exciting people about the political process that they could just change uh, it however they want. Um, I don't know, maybe uh, just a small word about how you are concretely organized mm -hmm. in CovZero. Is it like an mm -hmm. NGO or is mm -hmm. it an open movement? Right. So uh, CovZero is, is really uh, a space. And then a space, it has online and it has offline parts. And the offline parts is very simple. Uh, every month, we have a hackathon. Uh, every uh, odd month, we have a hackathon that's more than 100 people, sometimes 600 people. It's a very large hackathon. And then every uh, alternate month, we have a smaller one of maybe 50, 60 people, but still uh, a lot of people. And then practically every weekend, there's smaller uh, meetups, uh, smaller hackathons going on that is specific to a project. So um, this is like an ongoing incubating process because on a uh, hackathon, uh, people take 20 minutes uh, and uh, th three minutes each for everybody to pitch their ideas they will want to do for the next month. And then uh, because we give out stickers to all the participants, so you can take a sticker that says, you know, you're a lawyer, you're a storyteller, you're a designer, you're a coder, and so on. And then so for people to pitch their ideas, they say, okay, this idea would need two engineers, uh, two designers, one storyteller, one PR person, and so on. And then the, they play musical chairs to, to form a team that very quickly prototypes whatever this person has in mind. Uh, and so I think the key of... Uh, running this kind of offline space is that whatever uh, we do in the offline space, we keep a complete uh, streaming video and real-time transcripts and so on. So it has its uh, representative counterparts in the online space. So everybody who couldn't come to the hackathon, they watch either uh, through live broadcast or they, they go through the online hackpad or some kind of uh, collaborative editing and then they carry the project forward for the next month. So, um, and for each month, there's maybe 20 new projects, and of which maybe only five will uh, survive to the next month. The other 15 would very quickly be, be found, you know, not so good idea. But on the other hand, this is what we say, fail fast, because there really is no cost other than people's time putting into it. And also because it's open source, so the next month's projects get to cherry pick whatever the parts that worked, and then uh, learn from the mistakes, and then start a new crop of 20 projects. That's it. Oh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. So yeah, what about civil servants in this context? What mm -hmm. role do they play? Do they play any? Should mm -hmm. they play any? Mm -hmm. According to you, is mm -hmm. it? And what is the? And maybe what's the difference of the role you you? Uh, you see that's most suited for a civil servant and for elected official, or do mm -hmm. they work together? Plus third parties like GovZero's mm -hmm. organization. Right. Um, so when GovZero first started, 
it's kind of a, a rebellious kind of, you know, the civil servant isn't doing their websites properly. So, <laughs> so we, we do it properly for you for free. <laughs> so, so um, but uh, as time goes on, uh, more and more civil servants in their spare time and uh, usually uh, like not full-time contractors and things like that, they, they join GovZero because they, they think it as a way to amplify their uh, respective uh, bargaining power within their, their department. Because usually the elected officials set a, a course, but they uh, don't necessarily know what is the latest and the greatest way of uh, delivering this. And so by participating in the GovZero community, the individual civil servants uh, learn the ways to you know, efficiently uh, do a lot of scalable websites at the cost of zero and are, are the latest like mobile responsive uh, design uh, things and you know those very small things but taken together that, that improves the efficiency of administration and uh, and that's the first year of God's zero and on the second year uh, because of the Occupy movement, uh, we occupied the, the parliament for 22 days and it was a one of the few successful uh, Occupy uh, movements, um, then the, the agenda of the central government changed. The elected officials began to see uh, the netizens as a constituency that they could not miss. So um, the concrete way that Taiwan responded to this was to decree that all the public projects that has a, a cost that's less than about 1 million euros must uh, release everything as open data, as reusable data, and just you know, super public, uh, everything. So, so the, the idea here is that the civil servants then, then see a role change because uh, before they were the gatekeepers of information, they were the gatekeepers of policy, they were the gatekeepers of everything. But now with this open government push, uh, they become you know, experts in evaluating what kind of data is, is useful for the civil society, because the civil society suddenly sees an influx of millions of different kind of data sets, and it's very difficult to, to see what is actually useful, what is actually to be improved, and so on. And so the civil uh, servants become uh, a kind of a facilitating helper to the civil society to make use of this sudden uh, influx of, of open data. And that's what we've been working on in the past year. Um, you said that we need professional mediators to make the governments, the civil society, and the private sector discuss mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. and find solutions. Mm -hmm. Do you think that civil servants mm -hmm. should assume this kind of responsibility? They should, uh, definitely. Um, when, when I'm talking about the so-called cross-sectoral uh, conversations, um, our preparation or mediating team usually consists of uh, one or two uh, public servants, one or two people from the private sector that are our main stakeholders, and one or two people who are from the civil society who are the stakeholders, but from a civil society point of view. And, and when we do this cross-sectoral team and we use this team to you know, survey the stakeholder, to prepare for the consultation, to prepare for the deliberation, and so on, uh, this lends to a very different kind of flavor to the, the kind of legitimacy of, of the agenda setting. Because when it was just the, the private sector, what we call the private-public partnership, uh, then people see it as just a, another kind of lobbying. And then when it's only the civil society, then people see it's just another kind of demonstration. So uh, only by combining these uh, three kinds of people uh, could we lend a, a really um, 
cross-sectoral legitimacy to whatever thing that we're uh, trying to develop and the project that we're trying to grow among sectors. And among these, I think civil servants are uniquely uh, suited in uh, preparing the, the actual technical details of the, the deliberation, including the agenda, the, the hearing process, because they, they know the current rules best and the current loopholes also best. <laughs> and so whatever uh, process innovations we need to make for this kind of cross-sectoral uh, innovations, it wouldn't come from the private sector or from the civil society. It has to come with the people who currently play by the rules and knows how the rules could uh, be more flexible in, in this kind of regard. So, um, do you think that cultural context mm -hmm. matters to develop mm -hmm. this kind of project? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, as I said, before and after the Occupy, the, the cultural context is completely different in, in Taiwan. Because in Taiwan, uh, we're a very young democracy. Uh, we was like under martial law until the 1989. So uh, people really only had one generation of time to, to learn how representative democracies work. And so I think also perhaps because of that, people see uh, representative democracy as something that, that could be experimented with because it's so new uh, and, and people are not really good at it yet. So, so when, when we do uh, direct democracy, deliberative democracy, participative democracy, they, they see it as you know, complementary, it's just one of those you know, new options on the menu. <laughs> so, so, so it is a, a very different culture uh, compared to you know, a republic with more than 300 uh, years of, of history. So I think it, it really is different. Because in France, it's more the political debate. It's mostly framed in terms of conflict rather than focusing on building consensus. Mm -hmm. How do we shift towards a more consensus based mm -hmm. system? Well, um, actually, just two years ago in Taiwan, people would uh, ask exactly the, the same question, like uh, the two main parties, they, they interlock each other. <coughs> and, uh, we cannot actually get anything done because uh, all we see is fighting and debating. And, and I think a lot of the, the dynamic here is about the traditional media. And uh, this is especially true when traditional media was still on the era of uh, paper and ink. Uh, because with, with paper and ink, the, the space of conveying information is very limited. And so just to attract people's attention, one would, uh, of course, do a very sensationalist uh, take on, on the matter, even though maybe they ask the, the experts or the scholars who offer a very balanced view, but the editorial title is always you know, just the, the most sensational uh, part angle of the, the opposition. But uh, with uh, social media and social computing in, in general, uh, we start to see a, a new crop of uh, what we call the self-media, uh, which is people who practice in the deliberations, who practice in the civil society, in the private sector, in the public sector, and just use Twitter or Facebook or uh, any of their blogs and so on to try to uh, convey a, their own point of view in an unfiltered way. And I think just in the past two or three Years Taiwan has been, you know, one of the actually the most uh, 
active uh, country on Facebook, and there's a projection that says, you know, by the end of this decade, there will be more Taiwanese Facebook users than Taiwanese people, and because more some people has more than two, uh, one accounts, <laughs> so in, in in this in this regard, people will start to see uh, media as something that has its own agenda. But without this, you know, comparison with different social media, people were not aware of this, and so it become very uh, easy for the uh, media to to, as you said, optimize to for the. Uh, attraction that comes from the inherent conflict or opposition of the, the values, but uh, more and more we're seeing that people who control their own media become their media. Uh, do not put so much emphasis on abstract values; they put a lot of emphasis on concrete policies and concrete items. And on those things, it's easy to get consensus or overlapping consensus because people don't have to agree on worldview to to agree on you know what the the street should be fixed. It is a very concrete item. So uh, as we go deeper and deeper into uh, this kind of multi-layer social computing, uh, I think the, the traditional media's agenda setting will necessarily change. And when that changes, uh, I think along with the change, people will see those uh, artificial um, conflicts or artificial oppositions are like the thing of yesterday, like artificial scarcity and things like that. So I think really uh, just become the media is <laughs> the, the, the way forward to, to fix this problem. Um, so do you think that open source digital solutions mm -hmm. are the only solutions to solve contemporary mm -hmm. democracy's challenges? Mm -hmm. Right, so um, open source actually means uh, that it is not the only solution. Because open source by definition means that if you're not happy with the solution, you can take it, fork it, and, and do it whatever your way, right? So uh, by by saying open source or open data or open system or something, it is uh, really admitting that there is no uh, best solution. There is no only solution. Uh, essentially, everybody needs their own solution to uh, their world of problems. It's just that when they're fixing their own problems, if they share the way they uh, fix their problems, they enable other people who become you know, much more empowered and they see by example that, oh, this person is fixing their own problem in a way that is in the open. Uh, and they would now learn that, oh, so the places where we think uh, with a kind of learned helplessness uh, is now uh, actually amenable to, to do it yourself kind of, kind of way of fixing it. So I, I think this is, uh, this is really about the, the um, democracy's challenges in the sense that if people insist on having the, the same fine consensus of how democracy should work, then it will never please uh, everybody. It will please actually nobody because uh, people would fight, they would argue, they would uh, arrive on compromise that uh, pleases really nobody. But if people accept this kind of open world, pluralistic uh, kind of worldview, then everybody could just cater the uh, democratic or the governance system uh, to the way that they, they prefer. And then in, in this kind of uh, pluralistic worldview, then people could just be happy with whatever they have, but at, at all time open to uh, new contributions. And that's exactly what open source is about. And this actually ties in uh, with the idea about pen and paper. Because in digital space, uh, to, there really is no uh, limit to, to the canvas. 
So uh, when you think in a way that is uh, based on pen and paper, people would think, oh, um, you know, the library only has such amount of storage, or the newspaper only has such number of things to print, and things like that. And when people think with scarcity, then, then people would think with, you know, distribution, economy, competition, and things like that. But in digital uh, solutions or in digital spaces, there really is no... Uh, limits other than people's uh, limit of their imagination. So if people start to think about ways that is, you know, an infinite canvas and things like that, a lot of the, the things that we thought are inherent uh, with the democratic systems challenges just, just go away. So, so I think the, that this kind of mental shift is also another key of solving democracy's uh, challenges. Okay. And to end with more particular mm -hmm. Yeah. Question: How would you describe your ideal twenty-first century political system? Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, I think the the ideal system is, uh, as I said um, in in my earlier talks, is a way for uh, multiple stakeholders to um, just engage in in real dialogue whenever they feel like, and this is important because um, in the um, kind of Oriental Eastern society. There is a lot of emphasis that's placed on, you know, the social harmony, the collective, and things like that. And uh, um, the previous century, uh, we, we focused on the modernizing project that placed a lot of uh, emphasis on the individual's rights, human rights, the individual's uh, rights to be different from, from their peers and not to be uh, subject to peer pressure and so on. But uh, now that we're pretty good at, at this part, uh, I think it really is uh, a kind of yin and yang uh, relationship that uh, says basically you, you would remain an individual uh, and with your individual human rights and everything like that. But whenever you want to engage uh, with the discussion in the public sphere, then regardless of which kind of uh, sector you're coming from, uh, you, you get a, the um, symmetric kind of attention from the other sectors. And as people get more and more familiar with this, then I think people will start to see that uh, specialists in one of the three sectors are really uh, not the norm. It's a limitation of imagination because those three sectors are just uh, different ways of exchanging uh, information or goods with other people. We can exchange with you know, redistribution, that's the first sector, or with uh, money, that's the second sector, or with voluntary time, that's the third sector. And actually, we, we do three different kinds of exchange all the time, every day. So as people become more fluid, more flexible with these kind of uh, modes of exchange, I think the political system would also uh, start to morph into something that is more flexible and more humane uh, in addressing uh, the different sectors um, um, concerns because then people would not be fixed uh, to their roles uh, within a, a certain sector. That's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> another controversial question. But, uh, it's may not. Uh, I don't know. Do you mind? Maybe we can stop recording. But uh, <laughs> uh, or to question, I was wondering. Uh, uh -huh. But uh, I don't know if. Uh, go ahead. If I can. Uh, go ahead. No, it's just I was, maybe Taiwan is not the same context, but in France we have uh, inequality problem uh, between people mm -hmm. in access to knowledge, access to practice, mm -hmm. and um, access to power mm -hmm. and capital. Yeah. Uh, and our problem is that inequalities are more 
boring reducing right now. Mm -hmm. And my question was, uh, it, don't you think, I'm, I'm not even convinced by what I'm saying, but it's just like a question. Like, is this part of the interview? Don't you think that there is a risk of a reinforcement of the logics that mm -hmm. are already in place because people who will fit with this fluid system will be the people who already have the codes mm -hmm. of it mm -hmm. and people who don't mm -hmm. have knowledge or practice mm -hmm. or code or access mm -hmm. of cultural mm -hmm. uh, background to access mm -hmm. to it will be marginalized even mm -hmm. more uh, mm -hmm. if like mm -hmm. they couldn't mm -hmm. create their own public service mm -hmm. because they are not um, mm -hmm. cannot access to this mm -hmm. fluid System. Right. I, don't know what, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you understand that. I, I do, I do. Um, yes. Um, so, actually, this question it has, has two, two parts. One is, one is uh, what we call... Yeah, this is better? Uh, yeah, much better. <laughs> um, <laughs> one is... Yeah, it feels less like an interrogation. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, it agrees with me. <laughs> right. Um, it has two parts. What one is uh, what we call the accessibility problem. Uh, me means that uh, people's access to yeah. to this kind of uh, public sphere, right? And the the other part is is what we call the inequality of opportunity. And this is very different from accessibility. And yeah. and I think we have to discuss this separately. Um, regarding um, accessibility, I, I think this is. Uh, so, so I'll, I'll share a very concrete project that I work with the Oxford University Press. Uh, you're probably familiar with the uh, United Nations project that wants to eliminate poverty by yeah. now. Uh, but <laughs> it didn't, right? <laughs> and uh, it, it made some progress. Uh, but the, the problem with linear extrapolation is that people become much more optimistic than they should. So, so they, they see a downward, uh, like... Um, of extreme poverty, and so they extrapolate and says, you know, within ten years everything will, right? So, but it didn't happen. And and when we uh, in the OUP in the Oxford University Press talk about this problem, and we we have some very concrete examples in um, the Polynesian and in South African, and in you know some places where the UN was the focus areas on. And uh, for example, in Misotok uh, language in uh, that area in, in South Africa. Um, the language diversity index is, I, I don't know, 94, like meaning that uh, whenever you go to a stranger on the streets, chances are that they don't speak the same language as you, right? But in some part of Polynesia, it's 90, uh, 98. So, yeah, it's impossible. So um, the, the, the problem with that is that all the public sphere uh, innovations that uh, even the World Bank or the UN are, are doing, they, they only reach, uh, you know, two or three languages out of a population that speaks maybe 50 mm -hmm. different languages and of those you know 40 or 50 um, aborigine or not even aborigine mm -hmm. minority languages they, they each have thousands or tens of thousands of mm -hmm. speakers so uh, the accessibility problem is is real because um, whatever program they, they have that introduce public participation there's a, a huge a majority even of languages that that is excluded but then it's not practical for them to translate, because the, the, the EU translates maybe 14, 15 different languages, right? But but it's impossible to, to do um, like 100 or, or 70 languages when many of them doesn't even have a dictionary. Mm -hmm. so, 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 so it's, um, I think, the most radical 
um, situation I can think of that explains the accessibility yeah. problem. Um, and the way we, we try to work um, on this is that uh, we, we send uh, linguistic experts, and again from three sectors, from the, the UNO development to UN, this sort of group, and from the uh, private sector, that is to say, um, the like Apple or Samsung or Microsoft, who actually hold the key to, to uh, accessibility, because everybody, even the Aborigines, uh, maybe have a Nokia phone, and, and maybe have a, a uh, Android tablet, right, because that's part of their life already. But then uh, they, they couldn't really make full use of it, maybe only their, their grandchildren uh, uh, may make use of it, and so on. And so uh, if the private sector, and the private sector, of course, cannot invest anything in localizing to 50 different languages. So now that's what the civil society comes in. When the civil society uh, uh, mediators come and then uh, do, you know, language circles and uh, collection and so on, but in a crowdsourced way, meaning that uh, people in the tribes, they they start to, to look at the neighboring tribes who are participating in this kind of crowdsourced uh, dictionary um, uh, project, and then they could, you know, based on this, because it's open source, uh, and then uh, fork that part of their neighboring tribe, and then change the, the words uh, and the definitions that it fits their, their own Aborigine tribes. And the beauty of this is because it happens uh, in a, what we call an infinite online space, right? There's no limit of papers. Even the warring tribes, even the tribes who, who don't talk to each other, they, they could collaborate because they, they're, they're actually just doing their own dictionaries except they're sharing the infrastructure. And now uh, all this is then uh, offered in a Creative Commons license, so the large companies are free to, to uh, just harvest it and make it into part of their operating system. And the public sector people uh, like the OUP and the NGOs provide uh, the funding and uh, the you know, vision to, to make this happen. Um, and, and this is just one of the many, many eco-sectoral corporations. But what I'm saying is that accessibility problems couldn't be fixed without mobilizing the, the people who were uh, inaccessible at the moment. But they have to be mobilized on the terms of their everyday living not as a subject of some charity program. Mm -hmm. And and so so uh, I think that's the answer to the first part of your question. Yeah. Um, but the second part, uh, the, the lack of opportunity. Um, the, the World Bank uh, actually just had a report about this. Um, they they uh, distinguish, it's a very old distinction, uh, the Internet's uh, reinforcement uh, capabilities and mobilization capabilities. And they found that uh, whenever there is a systematic way of the ICT community to work, uh, um, like the technology community, yeah. to, to work with the, the existing civil society who's not so empowered with ICT but knows the local context, uh, when, whenever there is a um, governmental, not necessarily mandated, but, but uh, legitimate way of this kind of bidirectional work, then the internet is used uh, much more for mobilization and, and uh, in the enablement of opportunity. But in uh, regions of the world where there is no existing before the deployment of internet, uh, this kind of channel, then the internet becomes an exclusive reinforcement mm -hmm. tool, uh, and the elites become even more elite. Uh, and and that's I mean this is fact, but it doesn't it's not prescriptive. <laughs> it doesn't say say what to do, right? Uh, and and another kind of saddening fact is that uh, the, the places in the world where there is such a bi-directional link is less than 30%. Uh, 
So, uh, so more often than not, introducing modern uh, ICT tools uh, actually widens uh, the, the gap between the, the elite and the have-nots. So um, in, in Taiwan, because um, the Nationalist Party, the, the party who flew from the mainland China to Taiwan and assumed some kind of dictatorship uh, for uh, some years and gradually become a democratic country, they, they lose control of mainland China exactly because of this problem. Because they were widely perceived as a corrupt, elitist, uh, whatever party, and uh, uh, hope is in the Chinese Communist Party uh, to, to bring hope to the have-nots. And that's how they lose the civil war. So uh, when they move to Taiwan, they actually have the the land reform, the tax reform, the you know the social, all the social reform, and they have the Gini index as one of the, the top uh, priorities of, of their administration. Meaning that they, they they think if they repeat the mistakes in mainland China, they will soon lose Taiwan. So 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 then then we were kind of blessed, I guess, in in that uh, we, we've been putting a lot of administrative control. Like, for example, when the 4G, uh, first-generation uh, mobile phone system was deployed, uh, one of the spectrum requirements for, for the Zhonghua Telecom to get a spectrum was that it has to simultaneously enable 4G uh, connectivity in every part of Taiwan, regardless of rural or remote islands or something. And without this guarantee, they could not get a spectrum. Yeah. Right. So, so, so I think this kind of things are... are even constitutionally uh, protected in Taiwan, and which is why we uh, could um, have uh, rolled out these kind of experiments without incurring uh, the reinforcement penalties. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think this is generally applicable. Okay, yeah. but so do you think we should still mm -hmm. deploy like, mm -hmm. this kind of solution even if we have a reinforcement? Sorry, maybe I didn't. No, the, the, the thing is that the, the, uh, what, what I mean is what, that what you, you have to like do in Taiwan a, you have like a, a bidirectional kind of, yes, yes. Context, but yeah. So, yeah. so it's a real empowerment for yeah. all the population right. that if, we don't, if you don't have this context... Then, then you work on that first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. I mean th there's, pri there's priorities, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's not because... And that's, I think, is the danger of the, the, the word uh, modern administration or modernization of administration. Because it says nothing about uh, who uh, benefits from the administrative process. And if uh, only uh, it's non-exclusive, then, then of course it's great. But if it's already exclusive, then I think one has to work on the exclusive problem first. Okay. Okay. Um, maybe I, I have to... To run to my other meeting, but if you have uh, other tricky question uh, that well, came up, so we'll have mine. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess we'll have plenty tonight also. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, yeah. I really wanted to ask uh, that because I I wrote an article about open data. I mean, I uh, mm -hmm. sent uh, this article and I learned that, uh, in, uh, for example, in India, there was a project like open source um uh, land property information. Mm -hmm. and the name is like Bumpy and yeah, yeah, yeah. it's in uh, yes. And uh, there was a researcher who showed that uh, it was uh, uh, reinforcing exactly. the uh, owner uh, power. Uh -huh. Yes, yes. Over like uh, marginalized people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess uh, that's something we don't. We usually present open open source like a mm -hmm. great tool for empowerment, which it is obviously. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. Don't know. <laughs> you have to be careful with it. Exactly, as exactly. Well. 
like we all want to go in this direction, but as you said, maybe there are other priorities. <laughs> the thing is that doing open source is so intrinsically rewarding. Yeah. That 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 people feel is like a religious thing, but mm -hmm. but it's its externalities is is much more complex than than its intrinsic rewards. Uh -huh. so, so I think just don't succumb to the dopamine cycle, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Okay. Okay, I let you. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah, and I think it's the same, like you said, with um, modernization in the mm -hmm. administration. Like it's mm -hmm. rewarding. Yeah, administration mm -hmm. is modern, so mm -hmm. cool, but mm -hmm. if you just don't look at what comes out of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, just a quick question, and then I'll keep my question for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's a lot of people tonight, so you can ask all your questions now. <laughs> well, uh, but did, did you try the, your project, your platform you used for, to solve the Uber debate mm, yes. or this, this stuff? Uh, did you use it on issues like, uh, I don't know, taxation mm -hmm. or well, big political debate that are currently going on in France? Like, of you, and especially like, and I was saying that inequalities are rising mm -hmm. in France, and, mm -hmm. but also in a lot of developing countries. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons why is that we are getting yeah. richer, but we don't manage to tax these big transnational mm -hmm. firms. So. Those kind of questions, do you mm -hmm. think we can like reach some consensus with those mm -hmm. kind of tools? Yes. Did you try? Yes. Um, th there's a, a lot of different issues here. Um, I think domestic problems are, are really easy to, to, yeah. to use this kind of model yeah. because it is place-based. Um, we had to, to innovate our process to work with Uber and Airbnb exactly because our existing domestic deliberation process isn't working. Um, and the, the reason why it isn't working is that it, the, the mandate is just not strong enough. If you, you uh, the, Originally, when we were doing this multi-stakeholder dialogue, when we're sure that all the stakeholders are on the table and we extract promise out of it and they have a rough consensus, we know that we can have a policy there. But with Uber, it's completely different. Because uh, first, it, it doesn't operate in the same uh, judiciary um, context as the, the other companies. So uh, even if we get all the leading experts, scholars, um, commercial, civil society in Taiwan to, to agree on the table, it means nothing to Uber, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. so, so, Whatever, we'll just move to another country. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and actually, yeah, just, just bring our office. We don't operate in our office anyway. <laughs> <laughs> We're in up. So, so, um, so, so uh, and, and Uber is it's especially good at using its app as a lobbying tool. It's very good at that. Um, in, in New York, they they introduced, I don't know whether you know about this, when, when they talk about a, a strict, strict Uber law, it was just still proposing, not even in the debate. Uber showed a, you know, Uber Black, Uber X, and then Uber was uh, the mayor's law. And if you slide to to, to here, uh, instead of, you know, eight minutes or five minutes, it shows 50 minutes. 55 minutes. Oh, I didn't know that they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, but this, this was very sensational. All the celebrities were, were tweeting this. Yeah. And <laughs> so, so um, just from a social computing viewpoint, I think it's genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that is. Yeah. But, but, but from a, a, a policymaker and mediator's role, this is a nightmare. Because, because unless you have the same reach and the same 
virality as this kind of campaign. Uh, the local domestic government doesn't stand a chance. Um, and so um, we, we reinvented our Big Taiwan process just for Uber, actually, uh, by involving uh, as many drivers as possible. And so, uh, whereas before... Are Uber drivers? Or no, 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 taxi drivers, uh, just normal drivers who, who may want to think to join Uber. Mm -hmm. uh, and just any driver, right? So, um, and, and the, the way we did this was we, we rewrote the, the interface because whereas before you had to to read through some introductory slides and then make some uh, questionnaires. You know, the, the usual consultation is like the Numeric Republic consultation platform. Mm -hmm. The problem is that when, when people are driving uh, or stopping at a rail light uh, and, and using a phone, they, 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 they don't have... So we were designing for one minute of attention. But the, the problem is that when people are driving, they don't have one minute of attention. Mm -hmm. They have maybe five seconds. Then they shouldn't even be looking at their phone actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whenever we, we do deliberation, I, I, I always stress that you should park your car <laughs> before going down our system. <laughs> Please, no, 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 no voting while driving. <laughs> so it could be your slogan. No voting while driving. Exactly. Yeah, but alcohol is fine, but no voting. While <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Right, so we rewrote the interface so that it, it shows just one opinion, like, I think insurance is important, or something like that. Yeah. And then you, you press yes or no, and that takes five seconds at most. So, uh, and, and that worked. Uh, we, we got a lot more uh, participation, and when people, uh, you know, vote for, you know, six or seven things when they get home, uh, they, they open their laptop and they write their own opinion for other people to, to vote. And, and with this kind of um, uh, system, uh, we were sufficiently um, so so we did some uh, virality analysis all the uber black drivers they have a instant message group and, and did this went went viral right, in their group and then and then the uber x and then uber pop like uh, systems in Taiwan and so on so because everybody want to influence the the agenda because we, we, we said you know the stakeholder agenda uh, meeting agenda is determined by this system so that people spend a lot of time to think of things that would convince their fellow citizens. And when they do that, they, they engage in a, what we call, uh, a deliberative mindset. And when people uh, did this even once for a subject, they become immune to the uh, PR operations, the kind of operations Uber mm, does. Yeah. yeah, and this is, I mean, just a psychological fact. Yeah. So, so this is like uh, we, we did some kind of inoculation uh, against <laughs> manipulation. Against yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a vaccine of the mind. <laughs> right. So, so, so and, and I, I'm not saying that this is the, the only solution or even if it's a, a very effective solution, but it did work with Uber. And so, so when, when Uber uh, took the, the deliberation uh, raw data and made their own analysis, they, they, their conclusion, because they had to, based on fact of the real data, because independent scholars are very tiny, right? So they, they're like, our, our primary finding is that people who have taken Uber repeatedly support our policy uh, uh, demands. Our current problem in Taiwan is that only a few percent of people take Uber repeatedly. So, <laughs> so our main goal. You need more people to take Uber than they are in favor of <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is a very, you know, correlation causation thing because maybe people were not in favor of Uber so they are not taking it, right? So, but 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 
I mean, when this is their strongest argument, then that means that we're on equal footing. They're, they're not this infinite capital super, you know, company anymore. Uh, it means that we have to extract, you know, uh, insurance which they agreed, uh, you know, taxation which they agreed, uh, registration. They're still working on it, and and then the government could say, you know, Uber is still illegal. But when they complete, you know, the rest of the three demands out of ten, then we will make it legal that day, and and that uh, takes out all the fire, so to speak, in the demonstration or opposition because everybody can see like the progress bar. Yeah, I, I think this is um, one of the most effective ways that I know of uh, to negotiate with transnational companies. But then transnational um, powers are not limited to companies. And, and, and Uber is just their front, you know. So, so um, as to your like real question about um, other kind of not even it doesn't even have a name, right? Inequality doesn't yeah. have a name. Uh, financialization, it doesn't even have a name. These are just abstractions we, we try to describe. But they, yeah, it's just uh, trying to describe to find a way to solve it. Right, exactly, but, but there's no entity behind that name. No, no we, we cannot say, you know, I, I summoned a representative financialization. <laughs> that just doesn't make sense. Well, we had a president who said that and he didn't do anything after that. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, during the campaign, uh -huh. when François was elected, yeah. he said that one of the big th things he said that it was that his personal enemy was finance, uh -huh. and he's, so he personalized it, and then afterwards, <laughs> <laughs> so worse. Okay. So did it did it challenge it to a duo or something? <laughs> They just made friends and <laughs> 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 yeah, it was one of the big sentence of the campaign. Okay, well, I, I mean, and and this reminds me of the Obama campaign and now the Sanders campaign. So yeah, but but the the, the thing with, with those is that um, they're again psychologically speaking, they're they're at the the reflex, the the, the surface part of of the, the uh, mental apparatus, right? So uh, st staying at that, that level um, really doesn't do anybody any good. Because, um, so one, one of the, um, so I'm trying to put this in a non-abstract way. Uh, so when Clay Shirky came to the Cuff Zero uh, Summit, um, he was working on the, the uh, like, psychodynamics of the online social uh, revolutions, right, the occupies. Um, and I, I had a discussion with Clay um, about whether it's possible to make uh, this kind of reflexive uh, jerk, knee-jerk uh, reaction, uh, ignorance, uh, lack of transparency. Is it possible to to make those the enemy, like to to make ignorance the the, the enemy, right? Uh, and and he he's like, people tried that before. It's called a Lumia. It's called a <laughs> <laughs> Enlightenment project. <laughs> Yeah, but but the, the the thing though is that it in in Taiwan at least we try to we and we did make the the agenda of you know lack of open data or a closed uh, you know lobbying or, or those they they become enemies of the state so to speak uh, and I think again domestically this could be very easily made to work just by getting people to to compare, you know, the before after of different kind of deliberation. The, the problem with, with financialization this kind of equality is that um, there is really no large scale before and after 
comparison. I mean, there were a lot of, um, I think Manuel Castells uh, described a lot of uh, the after financial uh, uh, crisis, people start to live in a, you know, free of money kind of way, right? Uh, but first, it, it doesn't involve uh, people from the neighboring cities or, or country. This is not a, a very viral movement, it's a reactionary uh, movement. And, and second, um, it, it doesn't engage people in a, uh, in a, you know, once I try this, I, I won't go back to the world uh, kind of way. It, it is even less um, addicting than, than Tibetan Buddhism. And so, so, so I mean, uh, so, so we need better uh, mental states than, than that. We need a, a mental state that uh, when people enroll into it, they go back to the financialization world and see it as boring. Uh, and they want to get rid of it. Right, exactly. And, and, and I, think, I don't think we have a, uh, something that's, that's as useful as you know, the, the other parts where we have more success. Sorry, that was a long-winded answer, no, but that is a very well, complicated question. if we question. had the perfect solution, then we would... <laughs> then we wouldn't need to talk about this <laughs> yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's, it's funny. It makes me think of um, Anna, who lived there before, mm -hmm. just sent us a review of some interesting articles she's been writing the past few weeks. And there's one about this um, thinker, which is quite big in France now, mm -hmm. which is called Geoffroy de la Gasnerie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and he thinks he says well he's been writing a lot about how to reframe social movements and and socialism as a political mm -hmm. uh, thing and he says that we should quit with using languages that refers to the past as being better because it makes us more conservative like if you say like we should quit this or we should stop this or it means that then now it's bad but better before it was better and so it's not um it's not projecting you in another future mm. it's just, just it's like, linear yeah yeah so so you won't change a thing mm -hmm. if you still frame your your discourse mm -hmm. your political mm -hmm. views like that so mm. yeah i agree completely yeah mm -hmm. like what how do you, you make people have a glimpse of what should come after and what should we Mm -hmm. What is better, and then they would never come back to the, <laughs> to the other way, or right. fight it. Mm -hmm. okay. um, yeah, personally speaking, um, the, the, the day before the Taiwan presidential election, uh, there was a very viral video about uh, a Taiwanese girl, 16 years old, working in the Korean pop um, music, one of the singers, uh, Zhou Ziyu, and um, he was. Um, uh, waving the Taiwan flag in one of the, the television shows and uh, China was kind of angry about it but not the government, the, uh, the TV systems and the, the mobs on the internet uh, were, were lynching uh, her and, and her company JYP in, in Korea and so JYP uh, took a, a video of this singer Jo uh, and she was um, very pale and in like a I don't know whether you, you've seen one of those uh, you know, ISIS, uh, Daesh, uh, you know, movies where, where people were, were confined in this black and white room and reading uh, out, out of the paper, right? Uh, they film it like that. And then Zhou Ziyu was, was reading, saying, uh, I apologize for offending the 
uh, the the uh, feelings of the Chinese people. I am a Chinese. Uh, uh, Taiwan is part of China, and, and so on. So, so it was, was. She was reading all the official points uh, that, that that China does, and it, it went, and in a two forty p that is very low solution uh, on YouTube, and it doesn't even have high definition. And this is coming from one of the top studios in Korea, and and so um, it went viral. And and generally speaking. Uh, people think that this uh, gained the pro-independence uh, president-elect who got elected, Ms. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, at least uh, 500,000 uh, votes. And it, it really influenced the Taiwanese election a lot. Uh, and a lot of people who didn't want to vote uh, turned out to vote. Uh, and so, so it went absolutely crazy. And it was the, the night before the election. So there's no time for anybody to respond. So it was the perfect operation, really. And then, um, but that night, uh, that afternoon, I got this uh, headset as I was watching the solar system. And then, um, and then, the, the the video does nothing to me. Um, I, I started to to see it as a operation, as a you know deliberately low solution, so people could project their own affection on it, and that uh, you know the the nonverbal cues and and everything, and it it became. Uh, apparent to me and, and I don't feel affected at all by it. But that's because you know the three dimensional virtual reality trumps the two dimensional <laughs> <laughs> virtual reality. So to speak. Yeah, but but I, I mean this is a, a very, very personal thing. So so we, we do need vaccines, but but not necessarily of this kind. But but we do need this kind of uh, mental status. What is the voting level mm -hmm. in Taiwan? It's uh, for presidential election, I think 70, around 70, about 60 something, uh, about the same influence, I think. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I, we got the, well, people are less and less voting or voting. Mm -hmm. well, do you say white vote in English? I don't know if mm -hmm. you, yeah. Yeah. So it's also like white. And even me, I'm trying to. I know, well, the last election have been such a mess and you just end up choosing someone that you don't want, but you it's, you choose the less bad solution, so mm -hmm. it's it's not a good feeling when mm -hmm. you're voting with this kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. the, the participatory budgeting scholars in, in France kind mm -hmm. of emphasized on the, this idea of Getting people to get used to voting for for policy for things, not for for, for people. Um, I, I don't know how, how well it is working here. Um, I, I thought the term the turnout rate wasn't that good, but uh, maybe it's just the second time. Yeah, and it's it's and it's Paris also. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think uh, there have been some some experiments in small cities that mm -hmm. were quite good. Mm -hmm. Paris is also a difficult question because the um, the borders of the actual city mm -hmm. and uh, is quite small, mm -hmm. but the people benefiting from any kind of policy that mm -hmm. Paris could implement are so much bigger. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So where do you draw the line for people to vote or to get engaged in this kind of projects? But I think it's going to be really interesting to talk mm -hmm. about that with Clemence. And it's also that for the moment in Paris, um, from what I've heard, most of the people um, uh, applying or proposing some projects to the participatory projects 
where like a lot of civil servants actually and just yeah yeah i know there are two identities but Mm -hmm. i mean yeah you are first of all you're a citizen and Mm -hmm. then you are a civil servant so that Mm -hmm. could make sense with all you manage with like real amateurs and and professional amateurs you would say Uh applying with different set of skills and knowledge about all the city works and what kind of work Mm -hmm. So it's also this kind of issue that they have to deal with, and also how do you make the civil servant accept uh, projects coming from mm-hmm. outside and mm-hmm. questioning the legitimacy? Mm-hmm. Because, as you said, they were gatekeepers, and they are still in between shifting to their new role, but they don't know how to do it and how to yeah 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 to manage. Yeah, I mean, one one part is just familiarity, which I, I'm sure that you all are working here <laughs> to to get people more familiar. But but I think there's also a, a much more deep rooted um, kind of self identity. If they keep seeing themselves as gatekeepers, then there's yeah. a, a ceiling above which you cannot get yeah. them more open. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 